Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I just want to see you all. It's great, great to have you with us. This is our third public program in our fall series, and it's just, we're, we're having a great time. These are, you're a wonderful audience, and we're thrilled to have these wonderful speakers with us tonight, uh, with us all the time, but Doug Brinkley tonight, it's very special. I just want to tell you a little about the, uh, what exhibitions we ha have on view now, the Hirschfeld Century, Freedom Journey, 1965, as well as our ongoing Picasso's Le Tricorn Curtain, and we have our new brochure out. I just like to know how many members we have with us who've received our brochure. We have a few members. We have a few who are not members tonight as well. And I want to invite you to become members. The, the, your membership helps support all our programs, and we just love having the place filled with members. So check our membership, check with our staff, and see if that would be something you'd like to do. You will find in our new brochure, which you can pick up outside, um, information on our new exhibitions. We have one on computers, the history of computer called Silicon City, Computer History Made New York, and one on superheroes in Gotham with wonderful programs and classic films to complement them. I'd love to tell you about it, but we want to hear from Doug. So I will now talk to you about the program tonight called The Nixon Tapes, and it's part of the Bernard Nyrin Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and, and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees Susan Danilo, Glenn Louie, Sue Ann Weinberg and Lon Jacobs, who are with us tonight, and all the Chairman's Council members for all their great work and support. Let's give them a hand. So the program will last an hour and include an, an, a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles. And we, we ask you to do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear you and those who listen to our recorded podcasts on the internet can hear you. There will be a formal book signing after the program and copies of our speakers' books will be available in our museum's store. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with our place, the museum store is on the 77th Street side of the building and the book signing is on the Central Park West Side. We are thrilled to welcome Douglas Brinkley back to the New York Historical Society. He is a professor of history at Rice University and presidential historian for CNN. He is author of the highly acclaimed Cronkite, the definitive biography of the CBS News Anchorman, which was selected as one of the Washington Post's best books of 2012. Eight of Douglas Brinkley's books have been selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year, he is the co-editor of the Nixon Tapes, 1971 to 1972, and now the Nixon Tapes, 1973. So before we begin, I'd just like to ask that you would turn off any cell phones, any beepers. We ask for no flash photography. And now, please join me in welcoming Douglas Brinkley. Thank you. Well, good evening. I'm stunned and really astonished to see so many people here. I thought you had a decision, the Pope or Nixon? <laughs> Pope or Nixon, hard choice, and you, you all chose Nixon. I don't know what it says about you, um, but I'm here too, so we're of the same tribe. Um, I also noticed at the green room, they put you in up here. I was, they have nice little markers like books on Washington and then Lincoln. But um, Nixon's not a proverbial favorite. Uh, you don't see a lot because um, he's not anybody's favorite president. Um, yet, I think everybody here would agree, particularly people of a certain age that remember Nixon's career, he is undoubtedly one of the most interesting 
presidents to think about and try to understand his psychology, his motivations. Um, and I wanted to start by simply beaming you back for a minute, if I could, to January 20th, 1973, when Nixon has his second inauguration. Now, we honor Lincoln's second inaugural. None of us remember Nixon's second inaugural. We only don't remember it because of Watergate and, and his quick Shakespearean tragedy and fall. But at that time, he had just won the biggest landslide in American history, 520 electoral votes to 17. Just slaughtered George McGovern. In fact, in one of the Nixon tapes moments, um, he's sitting in the Oval Office chatting to Bob Haldeman, his advisor around Christmas 72 and said, but it's gonna be one of the big books for somebody, just Nixon in 72, no president's had a better year ever. And you know, if you add that that was the year of the trip to China and uh, you know, the Vietnam War was winding down and, and uh, he had just won the biggest landslide and one could go on and on of why he might say that. He had created the Environmental Protection Agency and Clean Air and Water Acts and was passing legislation on affirmative action and the like. Um, and he was full of himself, feeling of massive accomplishment. Um, but at that, and, and let me just say, at that second inaugural, he had a little something to please everybody. For the liberals that day, he talked about we're on the threshold of an era of new peace, meaning the long days of Vietnam are, are going to be over, or we're over, we're now in a peace age. Uh, and people, liberals applauded that. For conservatives, he threw out a line in his second inaugural that almost sounds like the opening salvo of the Reagan revolution. He said, government must learn to take less from people so that people can do more for themselves. And he echoed John F. Kennedy in his second inaugural saying, let each of us ask not just what government will do for me, but what I can do for myself. <laughs> uh, and there may be the problem uh, that myself with Nixon, um, because he really was a, the great loner in American history, a man really with no friends except his wife, Pat, who there's ample evidence of what a, that they had a wonderful marriage and it was his best friend, but nobody else, and he liked it that way. In fact, that same period there in 73, when it came up from an advisor saying, you know, nobody thinks they've elected you, the biggest landslide, but nobody really knows you. And he said, no, I know nobody knows me. None of the public knows who I really am. And he kind of wanted to be seen that way. It gave him an ability to be flexible, to not be pigeonholed. Um, but also on that inaugural, that January, the dark clouds in, uh, of doom were hovering over Washington, D.C. Just 12 days earlier began the trial of the five burglars and two accomplices, seven total people that were arrested dealing with the Watergate break-in at the Democratic National Committee offices. And in fact, on uh, Howard Hunt, one of his henchmen that January 11th had already been convicted, getting felonies and convicted of crimes, and they started following that January. Bernard Barker, Frank Sturgis, um, and many others were, were started unraveling, and all the president's men now were in trouble. It's also interesting to note on that inaugural that two presidents died within a very short period of time. That December of 72, when Nixon was feeling so grand, Harry Truman had just died. And in that January of 73, just weeks later, Lyndon Johnson died. Some people think that maybe if those two presidents were alive, they would have come to, two Democrats would have backed him when impeachment hearings were going or would have helped to protect the institution of the presidency, but alas, they weren't there. And in that spirit of hubris that Nixon had is why he taped himself, why he we have these White House tapes. We have 3,700 hours of White House tapes. 
uh, and these are voice-activated system. What's important to realize from the start of my talk, we talk about the Nixon tapes, is that other presidents did do some taping, limited. But John F. Kennedy, we have tapes, but it was usually for conference meetings they would tape or their telephones. We can listen to Lyndon Johnson on the phone in a controlled environment. But Nixon went full bore into this voice-activated system, which was the newest technology of its time. And he put it in place in 71. You know, he was elected and in, in won in 68, comes in in 69. And he couldn't believe that his presidency was doing so well in 69. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And, um, you know, he was started doing Vietnamization and the peace with honor strategy. And the public seemed to like him. He was up in opinion polls. And he had... It's curious that right when he won in 69, Lyndon Johnson told him to tape. Um, Dick and Pat Nixon got a tour of the White House, and LBJ said, I even have a tape recorder under the bed. I mean, I try, I try to tape stuff, you know, and, and Nixon and uh, Dick Nixon and Pat said, God, we, we're never going to tape anything, period. Um, and... They didn't, but then Nixon started feeling, gosh, I'm doing so well and I don't have a record. And boy, LBJ was right. I should be taping conversations, taping my White House. He got this new system and the rest becomes history. Now, um, the uh, why did Nixon tape this? Many reasons. Um, it's not just one, but he was very enamored with Winston Churchill's multiple volume of the history of World War II. And he thought if he had all of this, these tapes, he could go back to his home in San Clemente as ex-president and start ginning out these volumes about the, the great um, Cold War presidency, the man who gave us the breakthrough to China. But also remember, he was a two-term vice president for uh, Eisenhower, and he's going to be a two-term president, so a major Part of the 20th century history was Richard Nixon, and he was dirt poor. I mean, they grew up poor. I'm going to tell you about it right now, but they had no real money, so their nest egg was going to be these tapes that only he would have. Also, if a media person or some memoirs wrote something, he could always come back and say, that's not what you said. Here's what you said. Gave him power and control, and, um, and so... He, he went into the folly of voice-activated taping, everything. Now, I made a little joke that uh, about you, you all coming to hear me instead of uh, watching the Pope on television, but I'm a lot weirder than all of you because I've been spending time with Luke Nichter listening to Nixon over and over to the point I hear his voice all the time, uh, and it's not a good, good place you want to be. Um, and it's... Uh, but when, and before I get into his life a little, I, I, what I'm trying to stress with voice activated is you hear the Secret Service coming in, you hear coffee being poured, you hear, you know, um, unsorts of, of little banter. Some of it's very hard to decipher. So what Luke and Nictor and I have done is there's, a, Luke has put up a site on the Nixon tapes, so we're constantly kind of perfecting it. And then we've brought out these two fat volumes, it could be endless if we did them all, and try to capture what is most historically significant. But let me start with, with Nixon's life. He's born January 9th, 1913 in Yorba Linda, California. He grew up in the house that his father built. He was a Quaker child, both sides of the family. Um, there was a great... Um, a belief in the Nixon household of no alcohol, no dancing, or no, no um, swearing. Nixon never followed any of those in later years. But particularly um, poignant is their poverty. And, you know, Nixon had a father had to sell the family ranch in 1922. They had deep, hard times. They, his father then opened up a little kind of grocery store. Young Nixon, at a very early age, uh, would have to get up at 4 in the morning and drive a truck into Los Angeles to come back with vegetables, fresh California produce to sell. And I, I don't know if any of you have gone to Yorba Linda or really know where it is, but it's there in Orange County, very inland. 
and a very dusty, um, um, you know, western town. Now it's suburbia. But in his day, it really was kind of the arid desert west where he grew up. Um, and the presidential library is there today. If you want to do research on Nixon, you have to go to the library there in your Belinda. They re have the home that he grew up in, and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of odd because Nixon gives you a guided tour, like, here's where I was born, right there, you know, whatever, all that. Uh, and um, all, uh, trying to spread the, the lore. But he, I think a couple key things to keep in mind when he was young is that he had a, um, a lot of illness, so much so after a pneumonia, and that they really advised that he not play um, sports. He had, they found a spot on his lungs, so he was a little pampered. So instead, he became a really a great cheerleader for sports, um, but was never really one of the guys. I mean, when you think of Nixon now of the wing you picture him with wingtips and a suit and, um, you know, always uncomfortable without that kind of uh, suit uniform. You don't see him as a leisure kind of way. And whenever he was in a leisure environment, he always seemed awkward. What comes out in the tapes is that his swearing and cursing is always comes off not, not right. He's always trying to prove by cursing immediately that he's the alpha male because he was not that as a kid, but he learned that you could fake it. If you're a non-athlete, non-heart, you know, not a tough, scrappy kind of person, but you're an intellect, growing up in that environment, he would become one of the boys by, you know, God damn right, you know, we'll tell it to them, you know, those jackasses, you know, da 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 and he'd get right at it, so you'd start, he'd start kind of controlling the conversation with a kind of forced machoism by using um, curse language. And the tapes are just ripe with this. And it's usually when a batch had gotten released, people grab them, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said something so horrible or how often he cursed. Um, and I, th we, I think that is the main reason for that behavior. But he was smart. And in fact, he had gotten a, uh, accepted into Harvard but he felt he needed to have uh, taken care of things for his family. He had a brother who was sick, et cetera, family angst. So he instead didn't go to Harvard and went to Whittier College out there in California. After he went to that small school there, by 1934, he got a full scholarship to Duke Law School. And he went to Duke, and off he was goes. I, I want to reiterate, Nixon is a very smart um, a quick reader and had a, had a very good analytical mind, but he also had a chip on his shoulder that he had it harder than everybody. And even going to Duke and not Harvard uh, um, bothered him. So like Lyndon Johnson, he, didn't, he would like to humiliate the Harvards and the Yales a little bit because he wasn't part of that Eastern establishment in any way. And after Duke, he decided he wanted to go work for the FBI and be an FBI agent. That was his big desire. And in fact, it's a real strange story, but he applied to become an FBI agent and he never got a response. And then things happened and uh, uh, there was a bit of confusion. And, and the truth is this letter never caught up with him. So he thought they didn't want him. When we now know that he, he was accepted into the FBI, but this sort of strange uh, missing letter occurs. And at that point, he decided to go back to Whittier, California, and to become a working lawyer, taking on um, clients that where he grew up in the area. He grew up there in hard scrabble desert, California. Um, interesting as a lawyer, he refused to ever take on divorce cases or anything that had to do with a woman talking about sex. Um, this was an ironclad rule for him. And as much as I just told you, and this is why he's paradoxical, as much as I just told you is how much Nixon curses to get over it, he simultaneously is also very square. And so there are two Nixons operating, you know, you can hear it on the tapes. Suddenly he's with Kissinger, you saying the most horrid things about, you know, people from India and, 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 um, and Africa and, and places. And then another group will come in and he sounds like a Boy Scout with the most proper manners um, imaginable. Very stark flipping back and forth of personality. 
1937, and remember when I'm talking about that part of California and the Great Depression, we all know the Dust Bowl story and the Okies coming out there and uh, you know Bakersfield later near where Nixon was from becomes a big music center for country western music and all, but these were Nixon's people um, and throughout his political career. He decided to star, go in on the side in a town theater production, and he started, he acted in a little play called The Dark Tower. And in The Dark Tower, there was a young actress named Pat Ryan, and he said, I fell instantly in love, and he married um, her, we called it Love at First Sight, and they were off to the races, starting a family, having two daughters that I'm sure many of you of a certain age here remember, Trish, Trisha and, and Julie. And um, he then got hired in 42 with World War II right after Pearl Harbor. Almost simultaneously with Pearl Harbor, Nixon moved to Washington, D.C. for the war to work for the Office of Price Administration. He was a tire rationing officer. That's what he did for the war, but because he was a Quaker, he did not want military combat service, but perhaps feeling a sense that maybe he did have an eye on politics later, or perhaps just raw patriotism, wanting to, to en enroll in the military, he did join the Navy and had a, um, a and did well as a never seeing uh, um, combat, but being a um, working throughout um, and very proudly working through the U.S. Navy at the end of World War II. After the war, 1946, Nixon gets asked by um, that people in that 12th congressional district, the same area there, your Belinda area, California, he's asked to run as a Republican um, for Congress. And he didn't have really any other thing going. He was uh, the only reason they asked him. They couldn't find anybody. Um, and and you know here he was, Duke Law, and he had just got out of the Navy and was um, obviously quite smart and had, was known at the local college and people knew his family a little. And so he famously ran and um, ended up beating Jerry Voris. Some of you might remember, but. Um, he won in an unsavory fashion, sensing the anti-communist swell in 46 and 47. After all, 46 is when Winston Churchill came and went to Fulton, Missouri and gave the Iron Curtain speech. There's an Iron Curtain across, you know, Europe and the early, um, uh, the early wheels of the Cold War were starting to run. By 47, George Kennan is doing his containment doctrine. Um, the you know and, and with uh, the long telegram of Kennan is in '46 and in '47 the Mister X article in Foreign Affairs and um, you know the Truman Doctrine for aid to Greece and Turkey's uh, kicking in to stop communism and this sort of is the the wave he rides by charging his opponent Voris that he's a uh, affiliated with communist he's friends with commies. Um, and he wins, and so he becomes a little bit of a red baiter. Did he believe any of that? No. He wanted to win, and he and when he did, uh, because he makes a little name for himself on that by 1948, he gets involved after with Alger Hiss case in the House of Un-American Activities Committee, brings him national spotlight um, for being a a mini McCarthy, he never agreed with things that Joe McCarthy said, but he saw that there were political points to be gained in the Republican Party by beating up on um, Truman-era weakness towards the Soviet threat. And by 1949, he uh, had run for Senate against Helen Gauhagen Douglas and that year of 49, of course, the Soviet Union gets the atomic bomb, shocking everybody. I mean, we, the only time a country was a nuclear monopoly was the United States from 1945 to 49. Now the Soviets have the bomb. And in 1949, you have the Chinese Revolution bringing in Mao Zedong and Chou Enlai and the gang. Chiang Kai-shek forced to flee, and now China is communistic also. And so, um, you know, he's able to try to paint Douglas 
as opponent is weak on communism too. He's able to get a profile out of becoming a senator that by enough of a profile, by, by 1952, Dwight Eisenhower picks him as his vice presidential candidate. Why did Eisenhower pick Nixon? Well, California was used to be a, a key state, still is. Now we know it's reliably liberal Democrat and national elections, but of course Nixon's from California and Reagan's from California and Earl Warren from California, a lot of big Republicans, and that if Ike thought he might be able to win it. Um, and also, he was looking for somebody politically that could be a hitman. Eisenhower really was an I like Ike guy, meaning he did not have know how to go to the jugular. He didn't know how to counterpunch. He was, um, you know, liked to stay as a gentleman all the time. So Nixon could do some of the dirty work. Nixon would later do something similar by picking Spiro Agnew to be his vice president. Um, but big problem, here's this 39-year-old Republican on Ike's um, ticket, and you have that whole checkers problem where Nixon's starting to be accused of, um, of graft and of, of um, illegally using illegal monies or not, not felony illegal, but just taking monies and favors from people. It blows up into maybe, maybe derailing Nixon's career at that point, and he famously does the television checker speech, which some of you all remember, or at least remember the clips of it, where it was a massive TV event where he went on and starts telling the people that my, I'm a, I'm a, I don't have money and money doesn't mean anything to me. In fact, my wife does not have a mink coat. She wears what he called respectable Republican cloth. And, um, and then with the kicker, they say, I have to give gifts back. Well, I'm not giving my dog checkers back. It was a gift from a Texan, and my daughter loves checkers. And uh, uh, it's hard to believe this ham bone routine worked, <laughs> but it did. It got him out of trouble, and people, and, and it was, um, you know, Nixon was able to resurrect himself, saved his post, and then went on to be this two-term vice president for Eisenhower, fellow named Herb Gelman, his book was reviewed a couple weeks ago now in the Washington Post, has really authoritatively looked at all of Nixon's vice presidential papers. And what we learn about him being Ike's VP is that he was starting to get deeply interested in foreign affairs, that he was actually closer to Eisenhower than people thought. And yet it is true Eisenhower was going to dump him in, um, at, for a second term in 56, but he had a heart attack problem and other issues and decided to keep Nixon. So he gets to have these two full terms as Eisenhower's VP. And remember, if Ike, in, uh, Ike had some problems in his presidency, don't get, you know, get me wrong, I mean, and uh, some people, people fear there was a missile gap with the Soviets and we were, Sputnik meant we were losing in space. But by 1960, I think Ike could have won a third term. He was still that popular with the American people. And um, so uh, Nixon decides in 60 to go with it. He not only became a bit of a foreign policy guru, but I'd say his highlights as VP were trips that he made to Africa. Um, he got involved with the Civil Rights Act, passing it in, um, in the late 50s, and then went to Latin America where he got stoned and spat on and his star car shaken on his trip to all these Latin American countries, made a lot of headlines at that point. But he gets in there in 1960, and it becomes, as we all know, Kennedy versus, um, versus Eisenhower. You've probably heard this saw before, but it happens to have the advantage of being true. In that year of in 1960, that razor-tight election, um, people that listened to the Nixon-Kennedy debates on radio thought Nixon won. And people that watched on TV said Kennedy won. It was, keep in mind also, there's a bit of a misnomer that we've always had presidential debates. Uh, we have not. That was the first presidential debate in 1960. And in fact, if you think about it, after it, we had, didn't have any in 64. We didn't have any in 68. We didn't have any in 72. 
It wasn't until 76 that presidential debates got resurrected with Gerald Ford versus Jimmy Carter. So this notion that these presidential debates are American tradition is not really real. It's, uh, it's American tradition in your lifetimes, um, but not before that. And uh, Nixon was not a good telegenic candidate. It was mentioned um, when I was introduced, I'd written on, on Cronkite, and um, back in 1952 convention, young Walter Cronkite made side money CBS training cameras on the convention process of Eisenhower versus Robert Taft for the Republican nomination. And Cronkite made a little money teaching a course that you had to pay to go on how to behave on television if you're a politician. This was a newfangled contraption. Nixon never took the course. Um, but you know who did? John F. Kennedy took Cronkite's class, and so did Sam Rayburn. And um, Kennedy became a master of that new medium where Nixon did not. And it shows with the dark shadow of Nixon or the darting beady eyes, um, the, you know, the sweaty brow, uh, the, um, the way he visually looked could be repellent at times, even though what he was saying was, was you know, he was spot on for, for representing his party's point of view. He was, a, he was a deep intellect and he knew what he was talking about in world affairs. Even if you didn't agree with him, he could hold his own with about anybody. Um, well, of course, he loses in 60. And it's been said by some that, the, that the, the most noble thing Nixon ever did was not challenging Kennedy's election because of um, you know rigged rigged cemetery vote in Illinois and and the like, um, it may have been an election that Nixon should have won, but he didn't want to put the country through this kind of recount and and seem like he was a whiner, and so he let it go and instead kind of re pulled himself together doing a book called Six Crisis, uh, where he he talked about his career up until that point came out in 61, and like a lot of politicians, he used that book as sort of his handout to run for governor of California in 62. And lo and behold, to the shock of, of everybody, he loses to the Democrat Pat Brown, the two-term VP, the man who was just the Republican nominee in 60, loses to the Democrat in 62. And, and Nixon, in a bit of anger, kind of, Donald Trump-esque anger, um, you know, said the media did it, the, I blamed the media for it and said, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. I'm done with all of you. You've seen the last of me and, and left in a fury. Uh, well, that wasn't the last, as we know. Um, he became pulled for Goldwater in 64, and he started building a coalition and seeing he had an opening in 1968 Timing is everything in politics, and Nixon in 68 had the Tet Offensive going on, um, you know, which um, in, in Vietnam with the North Vietnamese ra raising havoc in the South to start January of 68, and um, in showing that the war wasn't ending soon in Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson's presidency is getting tattered, um, and famously Johnson going on TV in March of 68, and saying I'm not going to seek re-election because I have to handle the Vietnam War. And the Democrats are feuding mightily, LBJ stepping out and Eugene McCarthy in, and then Bobby Kennedy challenging Eugene McCarthy, and then Bobby Kennedy getting killed. And then we remember the Democratic Convention in Chicago where Mayor Daley calls out on the, you know, his police and um, there are beatings that go on and journalists maced and... So Nixon's coasting this year of 68. I mean, this is this tumultuous year. Whenever you use the word tumultuous, it's always associated with 68. And here is Nixon, a kind of throwback, red-baiting guy who lost the governorship in 62, the last time he ran, able to not only procure the Republican nomination, but in that environment to win in 68 on the notion of a peace with honor in Vietnam, um, not big on specifics, 
Donald Trump saying these days, I'm not good on specifics. Nixon wasn't either in 68. He was seen as sort of the law and order guy. Hubert Humphrey is an old Democratic pro, gets the Democratic nomination. And George Wallace gets 46 electoral votes as a third party candidate in 68, mainly from the South or from the South, Hubert Humphrey. Um, garners far less electoral votes, and Nixon wins by a, a fairly good landslide um, in 68, to the point by the end of that crazy year with the assassinations of, of RFK and King and the rest, the last guy standing is Nixon. People can you know, how, how, you know, so now what do we do? Well, one thing he had going for him was they couldn't be as bad as Johnson because Johnson's last year was so difficult. And um, as I mentioned in his first term, he does a number of things very cleverly. One is he gets the benefit of Kennedy Johnson space program to kind of use that Neil Armstrong moment that pulls our country all together. But also on that, that first term of Nixon, um, he is able to... Um, try to limit the number of deaths. In the Vietnam War, when Nixon took over, 300 American soldiers were dying weekly. There was an opportunity and a hope that Nixon would pull an Eisenhower. The tapes show that that was never going to be the case. By pulling an Eisenhower, when Ike ran in 52, he said, elect me and I will go to Korea because he was the Supreme Allied Commander of D-Day. He didn't say what he would do with the Korean War. He says, elect me, and people were sick of Korean War. They elected Eisenhower. He's sworn in in January of 53. By June of 53, we're out of Korea. So the hopes were that Nixon was going to do that, and there were some signs of it perhaps in January of 69, and then you get Operation Menu in 69, the having bombing of of an illegal bombing of Cambodia and then Laos. And then Vietnam War seems to just um, fester on Nixon. He's not sure what to do, but he's not going to lose the war, that he's going to find a way to Vietnamize the situation, to let the Vietnamese soldiers fight for themselves. Meanwhile, he's trying to promote his detente with the Soviet Union, he cannot, he loathes the Soviet Union. He calls in the tapes, the Russians are just slobbering losers. He likes calling them, he says they slobber all over you, that they tell you what you want to hear. And, and, and conversely, he forms almost a cultish love of the Chinese, that you can do business with the Chinese. Their handshakes are, are worth something. And, and he's seeing that opening, that triangulation of the China opening as early as 71. And part of the early tapes is to capture his grand global chess plan because he's going to do something um, that he's going to create a new U.S.-Chinese relationship which will irritate the hell out of the Soviets and get, let us broker a new kind of power, a great global reordering like Woodrow Wilson had to do after World War One. Not that maybe quite that grand, but nevertheless, geostrategy in a very, very weird and, and important new way. And um, he, there's nothing on the tapes. Regularly, he wants to know every single thing about anything to do with China. You will have him in one of his tape conversations, uh, um, you know, almost drilling a ping pong player that had been over there that comes to the White House about li every little cultural nuance the ping pong player sees. He gets deeply involved with getting the later the panda bears and even how on tape he's talking about the mating of pandas and how they mate and how they prop it. Uh, and, and it's a it's comic fodder when you read it. It's uh, but here it is in the Oval Office and he's discussing all this. Um, and and more obviously importantly than those kind of things is that he sees that this is his ticket to greatness and he develops that relationship with Henry Kissinger, the first volume of the Nixon tapes. It's Kissinger, Nixon, Kissinger, Nixon, nonstop. Um, the amount of anti-Semitism coming out of Nixon on the tapes, it, 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 it's, it's out of control. 
um, even sometimes in front of Kissinger, but usually right when Kissinger leaves the room. Um, I would go so far uh, and, and is to say that um, Nixon, I feel, was an anti-Semite. However, that's a hard, hard judgment, but I've read enough and listened to me. I believe that he was, but he, he drew this nuance that he thought American Jewish community uh, were all um, West, Upper West Side, Manhattan, uh, liberals, secret liberals in New York and all. He did like Golda Meir and like the Israeli, the toughness of Israel standing. So he was pro-Israel, but kind of anti-Semitic in his views of on, in America. Again, I know that sounds paradoxical or what, in some regards, but that's the way he was wired. Um, and his, and of course, famously with the Yom Kippur War, Nixon comes to the side of Israel in a very real and, and uh, meaningful way when Egypt and Syria and Russia you know, um, we're in collusion. And in fact, Nixon becomes the first American president to ever visit Israel when he goes in um, 1974. These, um, the, the trip to China that Nixon takes in 72, February 72, is a masterpiece of theater. He so hates reporters. I mean, the biggest problem, guys, about Nixon, and when I would tell my students when I teach is, or anybody, you cannot be a good president when you hate the media as much as Nixon did. It's not just the enemy list, but he'd read and remember everything negative he said about himself. Imagine if Obama kept the list of everything that somebody said mean about him and, it, and, and then want revenge on them. You know, I'm going to get them. And he astutely realized to stiff the, the, the press, the media the, the, of, of the print reporters, and that he could do TV on the China, and he'd only give the, the, the seats on the plane to China trip to the certain A-team of journalists that could see it. Well, the TV media bought it hook, line, and sinker, and the China trip was a huge success. And uh, Mao Zedong had told his doctor, it's about our best source on this, that he genuinely thought Nixon was uh, an honest and brilliant, or at least a tough guy who spoke directly. Um, Nixon never on the tape says anything negative about Mao, Mao Zedong or Cho Enlai, both who die in the, in the later 70s. And hence, this, the glorious part of Nixon's legacy in the tapes are this reformulation of trade in, in China that we're all living with right at this very minute when, uh, you know, when, when China is constantly in the news today and, and will be in this, this coming week more and more. Uh, so Nixon gets some credit for all that breakthrough. But the, um, the Vietnam War part is um, you feel the lost op opportunity. And I have to say what I find morally repugnant about Nixon is the casualness when you add this gruffness on the tapes and you listen to him just talking about killing people. It's never, there's no sense of, of, of moral compass coming out or compassion. It's like, how many do you kill? How many can get killed? Oh, well, I lose 10,000 civilians. Well, you know, just, he loves saying things like, blast the bejesus out of those bastards, you know, and then he'd get the death reports and there was not a kind of compassion about it all. It was a big kind of chess game for him, and I don't think you're fit to be president if you don't have enough of an imagination and a heart to the havoc that's being created. And I don't feel you get that from Nixon when you deal with him in, in regards to the Vietnam War. Yet, and there is no real yet, Cambodia incursion was a doomsday mistake for him. It cost him so much. He, the, the Nixon's supporters today, and they're out there, um, would say, and even Henry Kissinger would, uh, and who's, uh, I believe would say this, and that is that, um, you know, the bombing of Cambodia, the secret bombing, what are we doing with our drones today? Isn't Obama droning places? Um, you know, and that uh, to w win that war on terror, there you know they they would see it as kind of an a, a equivalency. Some of the Nixon people today, and then Nixon got a raw deal because the Kent State happens out of Cambodia, and the press is all liberal, and they're out to get him. And in truth, 
he winds down the Vietnam War. So by 73, at the time of his inaugural, the peace with honor and the Vietnamization was taking hold. We had the Paris Peace Accord and the Vietnam War truly looked like it was ending. So when he said we're starting a new era of peace, he felt that he was leading the way. No sooner is that inaugural over than all of the White House discussions changed dramatically from his foreign policy triumphalism to, um, to Watergate. It consumes him. He becomes <laughs> utterly paranoid. He tries to figure his way out of the jam. And he has, um, it, 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 it is, as we all know, who's heard snippets of it, just such a bout of damning material going on. Uh, keep in mind, everybody, that nobody knew they were being taped. The one thing about the taping, America didn't find out that we were being taped till June 20th of 1972, when Alexander Butterfield was forced to tell under, under um, on Capitol Hill, was forced to reveal this taping system. Imagine you're working for Nixon and you find out suddenly that everything you've ever said has been taped in all these informal ways. I mean, you would you're, you talk about living with illness. In fact, Luke, who, and, and I have noticed that all, people all the time when they hear about new tapes coming out, the old timers are, what does he say about me? And George Herbert Walker Bush said, I don't, I'm not worried about what he said about me because or what I said, but what does he say about me when I leave the room? And that is a good question, because Nixon sticks the knife in people when they leave the room. You know, as soon as they're gone, he'll say all this nasty stuff about them. Um, it's the Kissinger-Nixon relationship is is in psychologically intense. Um, presidents create alter egos. Woodrow Wilson at Colonel House, for example, and Sigmund Freud wrote a book about House and Woodrow Wilson's um, relationship. Um, you can go down the line. I mean, FDR and Harry Hopkins, and there, there are many. But in, in the case of, um, of Nixon and Kissinger, it's intense. But once Watergate kicks in, Kissinger's out of the tapes. He's in all these other ones and everything, but he's not part of it. So Kissinger is the great survivor of the Nixon years because he gets to go on and serve then for Gerald Ford as Secretary of State. Um, what do scholars make of all this? Because I mentioned other presidents had tapes. Um, well, once you know Nixon tried to, once the tapes got revealed, Nixon cooked up of 1,200 pages of release trying to do in a drip fashion, here's stuff, it wasn't enough. Um, then you got that Rosemary Woods moment with the disappearing 18 minutes on the tape and, uh, uh, and you know, speculation of erasure. We feel some of these things happening right now a little bit in the Hillary Clinton situation. Not that they're analogous, but it doesn't happen quick. It just every week there's something else. And as we all know, that happened to Watergate. I will say that, you know, remember Watergate break it is in 72 in, in the spring, Woodward Wood, Wood and Bernstein's journalism and Cronkite, CBS News, did long 13 minutes of a half an hour on Watergate before the, Nixon got reelected. And yet he won that lands, landslide, even though Watergate was all over the place in 72. People didn't seem to care. But you can feel on the tapes when Nixon starts worrying, and he starts worrying because of John Dean and what his special counsel and uh, White House advisor started going to say, knows, can't say, who knows what, how to put it away, how to do all of that. Um, the tapes doom Richard Nixon. Um, we get asked, why didn't Nixon burn the tapes? Could he have? Should he have? Many people told him to, like Nelson Rockefeller, uh, not, a, not a friend of Nixon per se, but said, get rid of them. If he would have burned them, say, I don't have tapes, forget them, they're gone. Nixon couldn't bring himself to burn them because it was his nest egg. It was his greatness. It was his one thing, and he thought he could win them in the court. He truly never believed that these tapes would be stripped from him that these were going to be his, he would win them, only he would have them. And of course, we know that's not the case, that characters like Luke Nichter and I are eavesdropping on all of this personal and, 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 and political stuff because these tapes belong to you guys. The courts ruled that. 
What don't we have? The courts ruled that conversations with Pat Nixon and his children are off limits, so they have not been released. So you, there is a protection um, of the family um, ethic in, in that. Um, and then there are still hours, about 300 for national security reasons, mixed in with the personal that have not been released. And they're constantly pushing for Freedom of Information Act to get this stuff done. In America, we do Freedom of Information for 25 minutes. I mean, Freedom of Information for 25 years. In the Vatican, it goes for thousands of years till they release stuff. <laughs> So this has all just happened, and it's, it's all in these two volumes of the Nixon tapes, and we did these books for scholars and to finally get on the record an exact transcription of what Nixon said and what he did, and, um, and I hope you get a chance to look at it. I'm going to stop so we can open this up for a conversation, for some questions, and let me tell you, um, by taking any questions from the audience, we would like you to approach one of the two standing mics that we have there. Uh, please ask just one question because somebody else could be waiting. And uh, there are two staff members on hand there um, if you would like. Thank you. Thank you, Let Professor me start over Conklin. here. Y yes, sir. How did you decide which tapes to include? Are they all of them or just selected ones? Two fat volumes, and it's selected. Uh, so this is, I mean, honestly, I'm not being exaggerating. It's just if we were going to publish them all, it would be like this. Trying to find what was historically significant, trying to let not have any axe to grind with Nixon, which uh, maybe a, another generation person older than me would have had an axe to grind, saying this is what's key to it. Now, let's say the anti-Semitism, I, mean, I could do a volume on Nixon's comments, you know, but so I picked a key, so the ones that are key and included, you know, we've included those as a sampling of that's how we dealt with this. If we're dealing with something on Indonesia, try to do a sampling and try to, uh, you know, get the stuff that it matters for the big history, but also moments that show Nixon's personality. It was a daunting task to do that, but we're putting on Nixon online, in a virtue of online, all of the transcripts. So you can go to nixontapes.org and now listen to all of them. So this is just a way as a consumer-friendly device of helping people get it without having to wade into all of that. They're very hard to hear, a lot of this. It takes a very keen ear on, and equipment um, to get to pick up all of this so, and do it as like a legal transcription. Thank you. I'm yes. Jim Pesinich. I'm a docent here. Professor, uh, I had read that Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, was shocked that Nixon did not resign in the Checker speech. He had every anticipation that he would. Is, there, is that accurate? I think in the sense that nobody thought he was going to survive the Checkers thing, and he was surprised that television, I, I could go on for a long time, how TV is a game changer in everybody's life. But the TV, the, the res, once he did the checkers, I think Eisenhower was smart enough to see, God, that wasn't very good or clumsy. But the American people ate it up. So he became kind of like a hero checker. So Eisenhower went along with him. But there's been a stereotype that Eisenhower, you know, Nixon was like an afterthought. But there is, I promise you, huge amounts of evidence to show that Nixon was a major, whenever Nixon or Ike would go on a foreign trip, for example, he would consult with Eisenhower. I mean, oh, he's consult with Nixon. They were, there was a policy closeness to them that's very real. Personally, I don't think Ike ever hugely loved um, loved Nixon. And in fact, there are some scholars that think Eisenhower doomed Nixon in 1960 by not more vigorously supporting him for president by saying, I'm staying out of it till the very, very end, that if he would have really campaigned vigorously for Nixon, maybe Nixon would have beat Kennedy. Thank you. Oh, yes, sir. Sorry. No, go ahead on your end. How do you think it's similar or different than Clinton's current email problem? I made a slight allusion to that, but I've been asked it in the last few days, so I know that analogy is being driven. I think that this is something, um, I think when you're, Nixon was a huge public figure, right? A um, two-term 
um, the vice you know, president when he becomes president, and Hillary Clinton was secretary of state. They went for, both of them went for the newest technology to do what they wanted with. Nixon's like, I'll voice activate it. I'll have all this. This will be mine. I'll keep it. It's going to be for me. I don't want, you know, oh, nobody else. I don't want anybody to know that I have my tape system. And that similarity with, with um, Hillary Clinton and, and is that this is my private server. Most of us didn't know you could do a private server and you would think at the State Department it would just be using it, but she created her own technologically based thing. And the problem is the technology is the point that the FBI can retrieve things now that you thought were you erased and all of this, but don't mistake too much Watergate with Hillary Clinton's email um, problem. I mean, Watergate was a heinous situation which all sorts of people went to jail for felonies, burglary break-ins. One big thing that I, I don't didn't touch on, guys, but there's a thing called the Houston Plan, H-U-S-T-O-N, and uh, it's about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and the CIA wanted to squash anti-war protesters Indian, Native American activist, um, you know, um, weather underground types, you know, or bomb throwers, all of this, that whole 60s. And so the Houston plan greenlit domestic surveillance on all of people that were threats. And it went wide and it went big. They were infiltrating all of these counterculture groups and all. The fear of Nixon often in Watergate, we think, because there's an allusion to it in this book, uh, is that this Houston plan would get made public. I mean, um, we know more about intelligence today with Edward Snowden's releases than we really know about the Houston plan because it's never been declassified. There, People are looking to get it. But there may be that, and one of the reasons the pardon of Nixon was inevitable, if he went to trial, if Ford didn't go him, they, all of these surveillance operations that Nixon was carrying on a larger federal government plan and it would have opened up in court cases in his defense that I, I was allowed to do, meaning we still don't know why they bugged the Watergate. Um, some the, the, the myth about it or what people want to believe is that he wanted to get dirt on George McGovern or there, it may have been that they were looking for this um, Houston plan kind of burglar plumbers union group may have been looking for stuff about anti-Americans people were gonna that were giving money to you know they were hunting for kind of for witch hunting in the counterculture of America for information on people and who was giving money to who and so. Uh, Nixon may have been a bit of a fall guy in some ways for the whole American government's Houston plan, and he got a pardon deal out of it in the end because there, our country couldn't afford to have him go on trial. It's very complicated, but I hope that made sense of what I'm, I'm saying. Yes. Regarding the uh, 72 election, how high a priority uh, as far as a strategy were the dirty tricks or defamation or just screwing around with the Democrats. Was it the number one priority as far as this is the way we're going to win? Was it a fixed election in essence? Well, it's a good question. Um, and keep in mind that um, J. Edgar Hoover is, is doing all sorts of dirty tricks. It's part of the culture of Washington. Hoover's like, you know, bugging Martin Luther King and bugging every, everybody's business and eavesdropping. And so Nixon, that macho thing, again, well, I'm a, I'm, I, can, I can equal Hoover. You know, I can do it. And he liked that Lyndon Johnson did buggings and bugged an airplane. And, and he, even though he secretly admired Lyndon Johnson for it, damn Lyndon, he is a tough son of a gun. He went and bugged his opponents, you know. It was part of that kind of uh, unhinged, dirty tricks, um, you know, the, the FBI setting a bad tone and tenor. So um, Nixon didn't feel it was that big a deal to go at, you win, you know, politics is the blood sport, you do whatever it is, you get dirt on your opponent, operate, uh, you know, research, uh, use the perks and power of the presidency to destroy your enemies. And all of that was just all in his... Um, his makeup. 
Um, but why he brought that kind of Houston plan energy and why the White House was getting involved with the FBI and all is another, another story. Remember, who is Deep Throat? We know now. Work for the FBI. The FBI's turning to get, they want Nixon out of there. Nixon's now a loose mouth. He knows too much. He's cracking. You can hear Nixon cracking on the tapes, you know, uh, in the end. Well, I better stop because when my friend Dale stands, that means the show's over. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Well, Doug, Douglas Brinkley, thank you so much for coming to be with us again. He will be here in March. So if you don't, aren't signed up on our list, sign up and you'll get notices. Um, we invite everyone who would like to stay for the book signing. Douglas will be right out, as I said, at the Central Park West side. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. Thank you all so much for coming. We look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you. Thank you.